Good evening. I always remember the definition of a lecture that somebody once gave, which is the notes of the lecturer passing on to the notes of the students without going through the minds of anyone. <laughs> but I think when you talk about lecture, you're really using the old Latin word lectura, which means a reading from scripture. So that's the origin of lectures, and uh, I spend my life at teaching at All Nations and doing other things, trying not to be boring. So uh, it's really lovely to be with you. And uh, last week you had an MA student from All Nations, is that right? Speaking on the temple. And was it me the week before or was it somebody else? It was me. And then next week you've got my tutor, Martin Goldsmith. So isn't it interesting? You see young students and slightly more mature students and then... Martin Goldsmith, do you know him? Senior student, 80-something years old. I do his website for him, by the way, so I hope he tells you about that. You can follow his teaching. Uh, but I learned most of what I know from my elders and betters, and I'm just trying to pass it on now. So um, let me just start my clock. Uh, you've given me the topic this week of the festivals and Jesus, or Jesus in the Old Testament festivals. So I don't know if you managed to do your homework that I gave you two weeks ago. Did anybody manage to start it? Did anybody finish it? Not yet. Well, you'll have time in heaven. Uh, 613 commandments that Jewish people say is in the law, 248 of them negative and three, no, 248 positive and 365 negative. Uh, but I suppose that one of the, the juiciest, meatiest topics in the Old Testament that raises the most interest, especially amongst Christians today, is, is what do we make of the Old Testament festivals and how did Jesus celebrate them? Let me just do a quick advert for some of the books that I've got. If you're interested, this is my PhD. Can you hear me okay? The heating's still on. Ah. Uh, Ah, Charles Spurgeon said that the devil captures more souls through draughty churches and overheated churches, so uh, do stay awake, but I'm fine. Are you fine at the moment, or are you warm? Warm, warm. okay. Uh, oh, well done, sir. Um, so I was just going to do a quick plug for my PhD, uh, which means patience, humility, and discipline. It's about mapping Messianic Jewish theology, and it's 120,000 words saying basically that Jesus is the Messiah, you can be Jewish and believe in him, and this is how we explain it. Uh, but if you're looking for a simpler version, uh, my story, but I'm Jewish, I think I referred to that in my first week. Did I tell you a bit about my German side? And I'll tell you a bit about my... Did I tell you about my Polish side? No, I'll tell you a bit about them as well. Because when you're talking to me as a Jewish believer in Jesus, a Messianic Jew, I, I'm part of a community of disciples that stretches back right to the days of the early church. And it's like um, you're part of a history that you cannot forget. And when I look at this topic of Jesus and the Jewish festivals, I think, well, what did the first Jewish disciples of Jesus did. And what did Jesus do about them? Let me also mention a couple of other books I brought. Christ in the Feast of Tabernacles, 
So if you want to do your homework, and, and I always think that for every one hour of teaching, five hours of homework is a good recipe. Because uh, personal study is the way that we learn. We don't learn an awful lot from listening to lectures. But we do learn when we integrate that into our lives. And for me, that's normally reading books and thinking it through. Christ in the Feast of Tabernacles. I've also got Christ in the Feast of Pentecost and Christ in the Feast of Passover outside. So these are well done study guides as to what the biblical festivals are, how Jesus celebrated them and what they mean for us today. And then uh, you've got today your roadmap. So would you like, did you all get one of these? Open it up and wave it around for me. This is your homework for tonight. So don't worry, it's not 613 commandments, but it's to go through it. And uh, I have a little um, offer for you as well. If you fill in the card to receive my prayer updates... And I really need your prayers. Tomorrow I fly to uh, some unearthly hour. I go to Heathrow Airport and fly to Kiev in uh, the Ukraine, where the largest Messianic Jewish synagogue is of some 10,000 people, believe it or not. Uh, But I would appreciate your prayers as I travel and as I speak and as I share my faith with Jewish people. Uh, If you fill in the Stand With Us prayer um, form here. We'll send you our prayer updates. I send out a monthly update and a monthly newsletter and I'd really appreciate your prayers and if you'd like to support financially as well uh, there's also the opportunity to do that. If you fill in that card and give it me back today I will give you a free copy of another little book called A Roadmap to Christ in the Seven Feasts. Normally costs two pounds but if you fill in the form, you can see my attempts to persuade you here, can't you? (laughs) Fill in the form so you get my prayer updates and I will give you a free copy of Roadmap to uh, Christ in the Seven Feasts. And uh, that's my book plug for today. So you will have this in front of you and we can't possibly do all the seven major biblical festivals the ten or so minor biblical festivals, but I thought we would focus on one particular festival, which for me is always one of the most joyful festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles. But before I get there, like any good All Nations lecturer, and Sue's not here tonight, but she would tell you this, we should have an outline of where we're going. So I need to give you a little bit of a personal introduction Talk about what does it mean to be Jewish and believe in Jesus? What is Messianic Judaism? Uh, Look at some case studies of the Jewish festivals. And uh, as I've said, we're just going to look at tabernacles today. And then think about that in terms of what does it mean for us as Christians? What is the theological significance of this? What does it mean for Jewish-Christian relations and ecclesiology? Do you know what ecclesiology is? It's the doctrine of the church. What does this mean for our unity as part of the body of Christ? That there, are, there may well be Jewish disciples of Jesus celebrating the same festivals that Jesus did himself. And of course, you've often seen the little band. I'm sure your youth mem- club members used to have it. WWJD. What would Jesus do? 
Well, he didn't go to church. He went to synagogue. He didn't keep Christmas and Easter. He kept Passover and Pentecost. Well, Pentecost is a Christian festival as well, isn't it now? But uh, I'm trying to get behind this and present it to you. And just in case you wanted to do some further study, people have written about this, about Jewish people celebrating festivals the way Jesus did. And if you would like the PowerPoint slides, I'm happy to email it to you or leave it with the church secretary. Did anybody look at the ones for last time? They're somewhere in the archives, buried under a pile of documents. All right, so I'm going to jump through to my great-grandfather on my mother's side. And this was my Polski Pradziecki Ilias Vis. My Polish is terrible. But I only discovered a few years ago that my great-grandfather came from Poland. And uh, he was born in the town of Tarnow. Has anybody been to Poland? It's near Krakow. And uh, it's got uh, wonderful sunny weather. And uh, he was born in this house which is now an ice cream parlor so I went in and I said my great-grandfather was born here and they gave me a free ice cream it's, and uh, but he came from a very long line of Jewish people living in the uh, area of Tarnow in 1330 Jews settled here in 1582 they were granted a Um, a charter to live here 1765 there was about 900 Jews in this small Polish village about 50% of the population by the time of 1939 there were 25,000 Jews 45% of the population and uh, they took it in turns one year the mayor would be a Catholic the other year they'd be Jewish In 1942, 40,000 of them were murdered. That's Jews in Tarnow and Jews from the surrounding nation, from the surrounding areas. And they were murdered or deported to the concentration camps. And so post the Second World War, just 700 Jewish people living there. Now, when you've been brought up in a history of this length and this degree of genocide, It has profound effects on you. Most Jewish people today are still going through a multi-generational post-traumatic stress disorder. We need counseling. And we need love. And we need Christians to show that they have a love for the Jewish people. Now, Elias Weiss had actually come over to England around 1897. And uh, you can see there his naturalization certificates or something like that let's see if this works yes Uh, i servant i edward weiss solemnly swear allegiance to his majesty king edward you can tell why he chose the name edward he wanted to fit in and like most jewish people we try to keep a low profile and fit in Uh, and that's his polish birth certificate elias became edward and uh my grandmother Elaine, my mother Margaret, and then I'm here as Richard. I'm from a history of Jewish people, most of whom have not been well treated by Christians. So when I became a believer in Jesus, I really had what I would call an identity crisis. My Christian, my Jewish friends would say, forget this Jesus, come back to the synagogue, be a nice Jewish boy. And my Christian friends seem to say, now that you've become a Christian, you're no longer a Jew. The old has passed away. The new has come. 
Oi, 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 oi. Are you following me okay? I was very confused. I'm still confused. But I realized that most of my confusion is not because of who I am, but because of the history of the church and the Jewish people, which for 2,000 years has been a difficult, torturous history. And in fact, what I discovered is if Jesus is truly the Messiah of Israel and Savior of all the world, then what could be more Jewish than coming to a personal relationship in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the Messiah of Israel who died on the cross and rose again for my sin? And the good news is you don't even have to be Jewish to believe in Jesus. Did you know that? You can even be English or Polish. Forgive me, I I try to insult everybody equally. If you haven't been insulted yet, please don't be offended. But what I discovered, and I discovered this at All Nations, and there's, are you all going to the um, All Nations 150th anniversary on, on Saturday? It'd be a wonderful occasion. 500 people expected. Have the, I don't know if you've had any leaflets about it. A great celebration of the good news that Jesus is for all nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And uh, the students will be putting on a wonderful show there. Martin Goldsmith and others will be there. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to be in Kiev, so I won't be there, but I'll watch it on live stream, uh, but I'd recommend it. But what I found when I started really searching about this is that there's no reason why Jewish people should not believe in Jesus, and in fact, an increasing number of Jewish people are. And that's why in recent years, we formed groups called Messianic Judaism, which is Judaism believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And Messianic Jews around the world believe in Jesus as Messiah and continue to live as Jews. In other words, we celebrate the Jewish festivals, just as Jesus did. So Messianic Judaism is a Jewish form of Christianity and a Christian form of Judaism. You say, but Richard, how can you be both at the same time? Because most Jewish people are not Christians and most Christians are not Jews. Well, if you're ever faced with a choice between A or B, choose C. And when you're Jewish and you believe in Jesus, you get the best of both worlds. You get Saturdays off and Sundays. You get eight days of Hanukkah presents and Christmas presents but you also get double the headaches because you're in between two people, two groups. It's almost like being the child of divorced parents. It's so hard. You want them to be reconciled. You love them both so much. You don't want to choose between them, and yet they don't talk to each other. So my job is to help Jewish people understand who Jesus is and to help Christians show love and understanding to their Jewish friends and neighbors. And around the world, there's probably 150,000 self-identifying Jewish disciples of Jesus out of a world population of about 16 million. That's a very small number, isn't it? How many people in the world now? About 7 billion. So we are less than 0.1% of the world's population. And uh, the number of Jews who believe in Jesus is less than 1% of that. So we're a minority in a minority. But since when was the truth decided by the majority? 
If Jesus is really who he said he is, he's for everyone. And Jewish people, uh, we believe in Jesus. We form messianic congregations or synagogues. And uh, we practice Jewish identity and faith in the light of Jesus being the Messiah. So when we moved to all nations, my wife and I started going to the Reformed Synagogue in Harlow. Has anybody been there? You'll be very warmly welcomed. They will always welcome visitors. Just ring them in advance so they make sure you're not a terrorist because they're always concerned about security. But you would be very welcome to visit the Harlow Synagogue. And I was brought up in synagogue, so I know the prayers and I carry my yarmulke with me everywhere. I, I don't normally wear it in the streets here because it's, it's not the safest place to wear it. But uh, I'm at home in the synagogue and I love praying with my people. But I even prefer praying with people who know Jesus as the Messiah. So are you with me so far? I'm going to jump through, but if you'd like more homework, I can give you the PowerPoint. I reckon there's about 150,000 self-identifying Jewish disciples of Jesus around the world, uh, all over Europe. Uh, Kiev, I'll be there tomorrow, more or less. Gosh, sounds a long way, doesn't it? I'm looking forward to meeting my friends there. Germany, many Russian-speaking Jews have come to Germany, and they have some 30 or 40 different Messianic groups just in Germany. In uh, England, there's about 20. There's four or so in London. Uh, I think if you're interested, the nearest one is Chigwell, uh, near Gantz Hill, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Why have messianic congregations? To witness to the existence, creative, saving power, and covenant-keeping nature of the God of Israel. God has not abandoned the Jewish people. And today there is a remnant saved by grace. I didn't choose to be born Jewish. It wasn't my choice. My parents just happened to be Jewish. And I didn't really want to become a Christian. It was my two Christian friends, Simon and Michael, who had a difference in their lives. I was overwhelmed by the love of God and I realized that Jesus had risen from the dead. But here I am now. A nice 62-year-old Jewish grandfather. Oy, oy, oy. And all I can say is that I found the Messiah, or that he found me. And Jesus sets you free to be all that you're meant to be. And I still can't stop spilling my orange juice. Thank you so much for helping me with that little emergency earlier on. But at least I know the Messiah is alive. And it's good news to believe in him. Second reason, to grow as Jewish disciples of Yeshua. That's the Jewish way of saying Jesus, the Messiah. Because if you bring people to learn as disciples, you can't do it on your own. And most Jewish people, when they become Christians, they think, I'm the only one. And they think, maybe I'm a traitor to my people going to this this strange place called a a, a church church. So this is a place where Jewish believers in Jesus can feel part of the family. Of course, we're part of the family of God. And then to make disciples of all nations, not excluding our own Jewish people. So messianic congregations are normally strongly evangelistic, and everyone is welcome. 
And many of my friends who go to these groups became believers in Jesus because they met Jews who believed in Jesus. To share with the nations the riches of our Jewish heritage fulfilled in Yeshua, in Jesus. That's my topic tonight. I'm so blessed to have Jewish festivals in my upbringing and I want to share that joy with you. The Jewish festivals are very simple. They all follow the same pattern. Our enemies tried to kill us. God saved us. Let's eat. Except for Yom Kippur, where you fast all day and ask God to forgive you your sins. But then you have a nice meal after that. So the pattern of the Jewish year, which I'll come to in a minute, is really something that Christians can learn from and be blessed by. And then fifthly, to demonstrate our unity with the diverse worldwide body of Christ, the one new man of Ephesians 2. Even Sawbridgeworth Congregational, is it, or is it evangelical? I've forgotten. Even the unity of the body of Christ with Sawbridgeworth Evangelical Congregational. Hallelujah. And I'm so grateful for your warm reception and your love and your prayers and your interest. Now, actually, I find as a Messianic Jew that there's far more Christians who are not Jewish than there are Jewish believers in Jesus. So I end up in all sorts of strange places. Not, not that this is a strange place, but y- you would be surprised. Uh, because the whole church needs to see that it's the union of Israel and the nations united in the Messiah. And then to stand in solidarity with our Jewish people. And I'm getting a bit political here. And I know that there will be different views on, on the state of Israel and the issues of Israel today. But certainly in a time of increasing anti-Semitism, and you only have to look at the news uh, about, I won't even mention certain political parties, but the incidents of anti-Semitism are globally rising, according to all the statistics. Uh, To stand in solidarity with our Jewish people and to prepare for the return of Jesus and the fulfillment of of his purposes for Israel and all nations. God has not finished with the Jewish people. Paul looks to the day when all Israel will be saved. And however you interpret all, it's certainly a lot more than there is now. And so that's why to have a messianic congregation... And that's where you feel at home celebrating Jewish festivals. Now, your church building actually looks like the inside of a synagogue. Do you know that? Has anybody... And the synagogues and church buildings are similarly designed, but in an orthodox synagogue, the ladies would all sit up there. And the men would be down here. In my synagogue, we all sat together. But in the synagogue is the place where the festivals are celebrated because they're part of our calendar why do messianic jews celebrate jewish festivals to enjoy remember celebrate and observe god's ongoing faithfulness in the creation election and redemption of israel and all nations it's not just an accident of history it's not just a fossil It's not just a nice reminder that's now been fulfilled by the coming of Christ. For Jewish people, it's a daily reality. 
We've just celebrated the Feast of Passover. We're now getting ready for the Feast of Shavuot, of Pentecost. I think even the Christians celebrate that. And our lives are bound by a certain calendar, which is part of our, our upbringing and our, our, what we're used to. And then to witness to the existence, saving power, and covenant-keeping nature of the God of Israel. God has given us these festivals... And he's promised that he's not going to take them away. Paul writes in Romans 9, verses 1 to 5, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They're not going to be changed or taken back. To theirs is the sonship, the law, the adoption, the covenants, the temple worship, the glory, and in human terms, the coming of Messiah himself. Paul links the coming of Jesus in human form, as the word made flesh, with the other promises that God has given to Israel. Now these are promises to be a blessing and a witness and to have a meaning for all generations. Are you still with me, by the way? I'd better get to my subject, hadn't I? So I'm going to leave that for later and I'm going to go for the Jewish festivals. I don't know if you like word puzzles, Sudoku or think crosswords, you can see a whole lot of Jewish festivals there. We have a lot of festivals. Basically, you tell the difference by the time of year and the food that you eat. It's a gastronomic theology. We do our theology through food and at the table in the home because religious education is with the children. It's not listening to sermons like this in church. Oh dear! And so uh, Sabbath is every week the main festival of Judaism. And Jesus has lots to say about it. And uh, the Jewish calendar, it helps to understand that we work on a lunar calendar, 28-day months, and every seven out of 19 years, an extra month. Now, we have every four years a leap year, don't we? And an extra day. The way the Jewish calendar is calculated, it's a bit more complicated. You get an extra month every seven out of 19 years. And then you go round. So we are now in May, and we've just had Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and uh, second Passover, if you forget it, as they did in Chronicles. And then we come to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost is the Greek for 50, 49 days Seven weeks after Passover comes Pentecost. And then Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, in September or October. Day of Atonement, ten days after that. Feast of Tabernacles, which I'm going to talk about a bit. The last great day of the feast, the Hoshana Rabbah, where Jesus gave special teaching. Hanukkah, around Christmas time. Purim, around uh, February, March, and back again. So it's a cyclical calendar with rhythms. Now you have the rhythms, we have the rhythms of Christmas and Easter. And Do you keep Lent here? Or have you given up Lent this year? (laughs) Some Christians are very bound to a calendar, others are not so bound. In Jewish life, you know every Friday it's the Sabbath. So I want to look at the particular festival as a case study of when Jesus went camping. And you can tell it's for a youth group. 
You know, we're asking, what is the theological significance of the Jewish festivals in the celebration of Christ? But for young people, it's when Jesus went camping. Does anybody go camping still? Did you used to when you were young? Did you enjoy it? Who doesn't know? Oh dear, my wife doesn't like camping either. Even a caravan wouldn't be quite what she would like. (laughs) She likes her creature comforts, but I used to have to sleep with the midges in Scotland. (laughs) But I did enjoy it. Jesus went camping at the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, when you do your homework, you'll see that this is um, the, the Feast of the Autumn Feasts, the Feast of Booths. It's the final one on your page. So I'm really coming to the conclusion of the whole cycle of the seven feasts in Leviticus. Jesus went camping to symbolize the fact that my ancestors were slaves in Egypt and then spent 40 years wandering in the desert. And they dwelt in what we call booths. But a better way of translating it for young people is tents. It's a very intense festival. That's a bad joke. They lived in tents, in portable tabernacles, in booths, for 40 years. And so if you're celebrating the festival, in England it's a bit difficult because it's wet and windy and you get washed out here if you're not careful. But in Israel it's a wonderful, summer is still going on and you live in an open air tent that's facing the sky and you have your meals there. It's one of the three main pilgrim festivals where you're commanded to go up to Israel, uh, up to Jerusalem. And the main commandment is to rejoice. Rejoicing is hard work. Did you know that? You have to make yourself rejoice. You have to rejoice in the Lord and not in your material possessions. You have to rejoice rather than be somber and downcast. So this Jewish festival that Jesus would have celebrated is the conclusion of this cycle of seven major festivals. And I'm taking one as an example of all of them to say this is what it means for the Jewish people. This is what it meant for Jesus. This is what it tells us today. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits and Pentecost come in the springtime. So our next festival is actually Pentecost. I'm sure you keep Pentecost here, don't you? Are you Pentecostals? I don't know. Why not? Uh, And then the fall or the autumn holidays, the Feast of Trumpets, the Jewish New Year, the Day of Atonement, the day when we fast and pray and ask God to forgive us our sins, and then the Feast of Tabernacles at the end. So I'm going to jump through because of my time, and I'm watching my time. I have about six minutes left before questions. Wow. I'm going to jump through all the other festivals that I would love to tell you about and come to this particular festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, I think we'll read a few verses from John chapter 7 and verse 37 to 53. And I'm reading from the iPhone version of the Bible. <laughs> but it's actually the English Standard Version, ESV. Does, what, what version do you use here, by the way? NIV. Okay, I'm sorry, I haven't got the not infallible version on my iPhone. 
Um, but I'm going to read from John 7 in the ESV uh, and beginning at verse 37. If I can just find it. Yes. On the last day of the feast, this is John 7 verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah, the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, why did Jesus give this particular teaching at this particular festival? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles, the main themes in celebrating it is to build booths, tents, and to ingather the final harvest. The harvests in Israel are seasonal. You have wheat, you have barley, you have maize, you have spelt, you have olives, you have dates, you have grape, you have figs, the final ingathering of the harvest takes place in September, October time. And if you bring the final harvest, you have great rejoicing because your harvests are safely brought in and they haven't been washed out or dried out and you, are pres- you can get through the winter. And so it's a time of great rejoicing, the third of the three main festivals. And you dwell in this sukkah. Let's say that word together. Sukkah or Sukkot, the plural, temporary dwellings, and you wave what is called a lulav. Now, that sounds like a lavatory brush, doesn't it? Um, I actually have my lulav here. I always bring my lulav when I do this. Um, Here's my lulav. And uh, I'm going to shake it about a bit, if you like. It's a bit like the hokey-cokey. In, out, in, out, you shake it all about because you wave or shake your lulav. Now, this is a a slightly dried-out one, because I bought it in September, October, and I don't think it's going to last much longer. But I did want to do a bit of lulav shaking here tonight, so uh, I will talk about it in a few moments. So you bring a lulav of palm, myrtle, and willow, and then a strange fruit called an etrog which is the citron fruit. It's like a lemon on steroids. It's about three times the size of a lemon. And it's a a citrus fruit, but specially grown in Israel. And the command when you celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles is to rejoice. It's quite a simple command, but it's difficult to put in practice. Leviticus 23, verse 40. And you shall take... You, on the first day, the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, branches of thick trees, which is normally the myrtle, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord seven days. Rejoice in the Lord always, it says. 
And there's a special ceremony called the water pouring ceremony. I'll come to that. And then on the final day, there is the rejoicing over the giving of the Torah, of the law. Simchat Torah, the eighth day of Sukkot. And uh, in the medieval period, they added a ninth day because they wanted to keep rejoicing. And you finish reading the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and then you go back to the beginning again. So the commandment of this festival is to remember. And here's a a sukkah that's pretty big. You can see that the, the roof has got fruit and branches hanging down. And all native-born Israelites are to dwell in booths so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. That's why you do it. And uh, it's the command to rejoice on the first day. You take the... There's a nice citron. You can see it's big. It's lemony. It smells delicious. And you rejoice before the Lord seven days. And in Israel, they build a sukkah city. The whole of Israel has got these big communal dwellings. Now, it wouldn't work in Sawbridgeworth, but maybe you could try it one year. Let's build a sukkah in the town square and uh, see if... Be- and I, I used to have this outside the, our shop in uh, London and invite people to come and have a glass of orange or a snack because it's a good thing to have something to eat in the sukkah and say a blessing and rejoice. And uh, you can see there's little portable dwellings there and uh, there's one that looks a bit imaginative, creative. And uh, that one, uh, they're all designs of sukkahs. They're temporary shelters so they fall down in the wind. This one looks like a load of bananas. And you can see in Israel, we take this very seriously. And uh, you say certain blessings. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaAlam, Asher Kiddushan V'Tzivanu, L'Ashev B'Suhukah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to live in the sukkah. And it's a blessing. And I won't teach you all the other blessings, but uh, I want to teach you the blessing for shaking the lulav. Not the lavatory brush, but the lulav. And you can see there the Orthodox Jews, they're carefully selecting their lulav, and they're picking out the right myrtle, and the right willow, and the right palm tree. And uh, the four species or types often represent the four types of people. So the etrog, the lemony thing is a sweet fruit and a delightful fragrance. And God wants us to be sweet on the inside and delightful on the outside. The lulav is a sweet fruit, the palm, but no fragrance. It produces dates, but it doesn't have much smell. And yet we're called to be the fragrance of Christ. So people should smell us coming. Well, not quite, but you know what I mean. Hopefully, we leave people with the impression that there's a difference in our lives and that we've got something that brings us joy that we want to hand on to others. The myrtle has fragrance, but no fruit. Myrtle, in Hebrew, is a very important word, hadassah. And, of course, Esther is the Persian equivalent of hadassah. Queen Esther was like a myrtle. And the arava, the, um, the willow, 
has no taste and no fragrance. Not much good. Hopefully none of us are like that. So act like a tree. Which tree would you like to be? We'd all like to be a lemony, sweet, fragrant tree. Now, what does Jesus do at this feast? It's really quite amazing. And until you've celebrated it and enjoyed it, you can't really see what Jesus is doing. First of all, Jesus himself became human flesh. The Word became flesh, John 1.14, and tabernacled amongst us. The Word in Greek is the same word that we get scenery, skener, skenoo, to dwell, to live in a tent. And in Hebrew, the word is the same as the word shekinah, the glory or the dwelling of God. Now, in modern Hebrew, your shekinim are your neighbors, the people who live next door to you. But in the Hebrew thought, the shekinah is the glory of God, the very place where God dwells. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. No wonder there's a special significance to Jesus at this festival. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the midst of his people. The tabernacle in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt into the wilderness, the tents of the Israelites were all surrounding the central tabernacle where God lived by that pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. And when the pillar moved on, they followed. And so God tabernacles amongst us in the wilderness, in the flesh, by the Spirit, and even in church today. You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So I need to come here on a Sunday and meet with God here as he dwells by his Spirit among his people. And Jesus, in the book of Revelation, we see this great vision of his return. And we read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So no wonder when Jesus gets up on the last day of the feast and says in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, Streams of living water will be flowing from within him. A picture of the temple in Jerusalem when the waters would rise up from within and flow out to all flesh. Now, I know you studied the temple last week, but for me, the temple is a picture of where God dwells And now we, as believers in Jesus, are part of the living temple, not made with hands. And Jesus promises, waters will flow from within. Whoever believes in me, 
the Spirit said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, why did Jesus shout with a loud voice? The word in the Greek is ekraxen, which sounds like he's shouting. And the reason is because everybody is going around shaking their lulav. They would process around the altar where the sacrifices were offered. Seven times, waving their lulav from, which way is east here? I think east is that way, isn't it? Towards Jerusalem, but east and west and north and south. And they would shout, oh, my lulav is, uh, yeah, that's the problem with keeping a lulav too long. The lulav would be waved, a bit like the hokey cokey, in, out, in, out, you shake it all about. But they would shout a special word. Now in English, we have the word Hosanna, don't we? Hosanna to the son of David. It sounds very worshipful, doesn't it? It's not really worshipful. It's a shout. In Hebrew, it comes from two words. Hoshia, na. Save us, please. Hoshiach is the same word as Yeshua, God saves, which we have the name Jesus. The same as the word Joshua, Yehoshua. Hoshiach, save us now. Hoshiach, na. Hoshiach, na. Hoshiach, na. A bit of shouting here in church. And that's why they are processing round the altar and waving their lulavs. And there's so much noise, so much commotion, so much rejoicing that on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus has to shout in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Why does he use the word thirsty? Why does he talk about water? Because at that very moment, the priests have been pouring water on the temple mount to cleanse the altar of all the blood of the sacrifices that have been offered. And Jesus himself, in this water-drawing ceremony, he sees the priests take large golden pitchers or amphoras down to the Kidron Kidron Brook at the bottom of Jerusalem, bring up this water, and pour it out to cleanse all the cobblestones and the altar of the blood of the sacrifices. And of course, this water is only temporarily there. There's no irrigation system that brings water up to the top of the temple. But Jesus looks forward to the time when the heavenly temple will have rivers flowing from it, as Ezekiel the prophet looked for in Ezekiel chapter 14. And he says, if you want that cleansing, flowing water, come to me and drink. Wow. And that, to me, is why God himself tabernacles amongst us. Jesus is God and man, true God in human tabernacle. And he transforms us so we look forward to a future redemption and a future kingdom. And that's why we need to have joy and rejoice. And in Jewish life, we always have joy with an oi. Oi, oi, oi. There's always a bittersweet mix of joy and pain because we are sorry for our sin. 
and we are rejoicing in our salvation. So if you want joy with an oi, and I'll close here and we have time for questions, turn back to God now. Put right any past wrongs between yourself and others, if you can. This is part of the message of this joyful festival. Receive God's forgiveness and a new start through the Messiah, Jesus. And recognize and take responsibility for the thing God's given you today. And rejoice that Jesus is coming again soon. That despite Brexit, despite everything going on in the world, we have a future and a hope. And therefore we have joy with an oi.